The world has never been better than it is right now by every historical measurement. If you could have any other time to live than right now, when would you choose, Joe? Has there ever been a better time to be alive than right now? Right now is definitely maybe 2019 pre-COVID, but (laughs) (laughs) within the last you know within the last five years, this is the best humanity's ever had it. And there's every reason to believe, instead of that, we're heading into doom. That 25 years from now, 50 years is going to be even much better than it is today. Lucky to have my friend John Mackey with us here today. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show, Joe. So John, you started Whole Foods in 1978 right here in Austin. I believe you started it with $45,000. Is that right? Yeah, we were trying to raise 50, but um, all we could get was 45. That's all we could beg out our friends and family. And we said, let's give it a go. And there were other organic grocery stores around back then or were there not? Or it was, what was, yeah, back, then, then? back then they were... There was a transition from sort of health food stores to sort of natural food stores. And there were a couple. I worked for one called the Good Food Company back then at their peak at five small stores. And I, I worked there for a little while. I mean, was it mostly hippies who were into this kind of oh, stuff? Yeah. Was it, it was, it's all hippies. Give us a little sense of your journey. You were, you're a bit of a hippie yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, I was interested in all things counterculture. I grew my hair long, um, did my share of illicit substances. So perhaps I qualified as a hippie. But, you know, I moved into this commune, I suppose, a co-op back when I was at the University of Texas. I guess I was about 23, just on the long-term plan. I was just taking courses, auditing classes, just to control my own education. Mm-hmm. And I moved in this co-op as a vegetarian co-op. I wasn't a vegetarian. I actually just moved in because I thought, I bet you're really cool people particularly maybe cool women live in a vegetarian co-op. And Mm -hmm. that turned out to be the case. And I had my food consciousness awakened. I became a vegetarian. I learned how to cook. For the first time, I made this connection between, I knew exercise can make you feel good, but I had never made a connection that what you ate could make you feel good. I I had just thought of the human body as sort of a machine and you just put fuel in it like a car, except actually the humanity, the human body, Human organism is far more complex, and it, it, uh, it's not just fuel. It needs a variety of nutrients. And so my food consciousness has awakened. I became the food buyer for that co-op. I went to work for good food at a small natural food store. And I didn't know it, but I found the purpose of my life. And I was quickly on fire and came back to the co-op one day and said, Renee, my girlfriend, we should start our own store. And she thought that was such a cool idea often wondered how my life would be different. And she said, that's stupid. What do we know about doing a store? We don't want to do that. I may never have done it, but she was excited. And, and we went and started hustling money. And, and uh, part of it, you know, I think when you're an entrepreneur, if you're so, most entrepreneurs are sort of on fire about their ideas. They're so passionate about them. And that's sort of intoxicating to other people because they feel the passion and they want to get involved in that passion. People met you and they got excited about it too. I mean, we're like panhandlers. Except we're, we're looking, we're looking for money to fuel our dreams. Were there, were there venture funds back then that you'd pitched or was that not a thing? Yeah, not, uh, the, the truth is a venture capital business was just getting started really. And, and not and, really in Austin at that time. No. Much. And, yeah. and, and, um, we did 10 years later in 1988, we went out and pitched VCs 
And uh, I mean, talk about getting rejected because we had a good business. We were making money and we had, I don't know, we were doing about 40 or 50 million in sales. We were making good profits. But they, they were focused on technology companies at that point. The ones in, we did go out to, uh, uh, to Sand Hill Road and I met with some and actually one of those did invest in us, uh, Oak, Oak Investments, which uh, their, their retail partner, Jerry Gallagher, was very interested in it. But anyway, um, I, 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 I'm, I like the venture capitalists. And uh, a story that I'll tell you is that I, I did get turned down. We did find three to invest, but we mostly got turned down. And I just couldn't believe anybody would turn us down. It was like, that's such a good <laughs> idea. And, and I remember one guy, he turned me down. And he, for some reason, he had to tell me why he was turning me down. He says, you know, you kind of have a cute little business here, but I just really wonder how big it can be because, you know, guys are all just a bunch of hippies. And as far <laughs> as I can tell, you're just selling food to other hippies. How big a business can that really be in the long term? He didn't, he didn't see us becoming something that every suburban no. housewife would demand to have nearby their he house. He didn't. And he said, he said, you know, in case I'm wrong, I just don't see how you guys could possibly compete with Safeway and HEB and the big supermarket chains. They're going to kill you. I ran into him seven years later yeah. and uh, we'd gone, had a, we'd gone public just four years after the VC money and Whole Foods was rocketing up and growing all over the United States. And he said that was the single biggest mistake he ever made as a VC investor. So we did get, um, and just think about it, Joe, to show you how, what valuations were with VCs. Here we are, 40 or $50 million a year business, making a, a million bucks or so in actual profits. Actual profit, And wow. uh, EBITDA of a, of a couple of billion, I mean, a couple of million, I've got all there. <laughs> and, uh, and so we sold 34% um, of the company for, a, for four and a half million. What? You once asked me wow. why I wasn't richer. I'm telling you why, because the valuations back then <laughs> were nothing. We sold a third of the, wow. more than a third of the business. So it was valued, it was valued at like 12, 13 posts or something. Well, no post. It was, we got the four, yeah, about, yeah, about 12 million, 13 million post. Wow. For, for, with, with profits. That was, you know, that, that was, growth. that was less than 10 times our cash flow. And we were growing at a, I yeah, the pre-money was less than 10 times yeah. the cash flow. That's crazy. Yeah. And we we're growing at a. I don't know, 40% clip at that point, 40 or 50% clip. All these old VCs had it easy, huh? Uh, they do. Now you have to actually pay the entrepreneur yeah. something, something of real this value. It's very different. In, in, in this market, that in this market, that this would be like 800 posts. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, Wild Oats copied Whole Foods and came along after it at a, at a far higher valuations than we ever got. It's easier when you get people giving you lots of money to build. You had to, you had to build over time. Now, tell me more about that journey. You so you couldn't just burn money to grow. You actually had to grow efficiently over time. That's really hard. We actually really Whole Foods, the Safer Way, which was the first store in 1978. It was in an old house. We had about $45,000. We lost 23000 in the first year. And that was with Renee and I living in the store and not really taking any money out. But we, we, we may started making money the second year. And what, actually, I figured what, out. What did you learn between the first and second year? Lots of things, of course. Were there key? Were there key you know, I didn't have a business background. But what I am is a reader. I literally read hundreds of business books. I began to, I, I just read everything. When I wasn't working, I was reading. So you, you got your MBA while you're building your Yes, company. plus my father had been, he was, in a, he was a successful business guy. He'd been an accounting professor at Rice University Sweet when I was growing you. up. And then, and he became my mentor for the first 16 years of the business. Never made a big move without checking with my dad oh, first, which that's is cool. good because I'm pretty sure I'd have driven the Whole Foods bus right off the cliff. If my dad hadn't, you know, said, what the hell are you doing? Grab the wheel, son. <laughs> so the second year, how much did you lose? Uh, we made $5,000 the second year. I was really cocky. Man, we made $5,000. I got That's a viable awesome. business here. I know. Let's relocate it and triple the size. 
which, of course, the existing investors said, no, let's stay where we are and make some money, and then maybe we'll see how you do. And I, and I, I said, how about if I find new capital? And I did. I found new capital. And then we were able to make that relocation. And that, uh, that relocation and a merger with another small natural food store changed the name to Whole Foods. And that first Whole Foods market was, it quickly became the highest volume natural food store in the United States. It just took off. It was incredible success. And, and when you started the business, you were always a capitalist as well as a hippie from the start. You were, you were trying to make, make a lot of money. In- no, I wasn't when I first started out. Um, although uh, I'd been involved in the co-op movement. I was living in a co-op. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd been a member of food co-ops. And, and uh, I remember they... This was back when Star Wars was, this was late 70s. Star Wars came out in 1976, and I think the Empire Strike, uh, Strikes Back came in like 78 or 79. And when I opened my store and left the co-ops, I was, they, they nicknamed me Darth Vader. I had clearly gone over to the dark side because it's supposed to be food for people, not for profit. Here I was trying to make money, and then I had clearly been corrupted by capitalism. But I was actually thought of myself back then, Joe, as a, as a, as a democratic socialist. I mean, that's kind of what I was educated in. I've studied philosophy and, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, but you know, an interesting thing happened when I started rejected that philosophy because clearly people saw me as greedy and selfish and I was just trying to make a payroll and earn a little bit of money. So I began to, in my reading, I, I began to read people like, um, Ludwig von Mises, and Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and Henry Hazlitt. And, and at one point, I think I read every book that was in the laissez-faire book catalog. And uh, <laughs> they told me I, I was one of their best customers because I just bought everything and read everything. And I just be- realized this makes a lot more sense in the world, that capitalism is, is not a force for evil. Capitalism is a force for good. It's helping humanity to progress. And there might be bad actors in capitalism, just like they're bad actors in business or bad doctors, bad lawyers, bad politicians. But in general, business creates value for other people. And I certainly saw myself as a value creator. Yeah. So, well, your, your book, Conscious Capitalism, is right. one, of your, one of your books has had a real profound impact on, on a lot of different leaders. Uh, maybe if you can tell us, what are the tenets of conscious capitalism? Yeah, conscious capitalism is basically, it, it starts with the premise that business is good. And it is good because it creates value for other people. It's based on voluntary exchange. It, it creates jobs. It creates prosperity in the world. However, if done more consciously with a sense of higher purpose, with a, with a real understanding that all the major stakeholders are interdependent with each other and that they form a, a larger system and you can, you can begin to manage that system to optimize it. So I always say to understand that, just say that like Whole Foods, a retail company, uh, management's job is to hire the best people we can find and make sure that they are well-trained and then, and then also that they are happy in their work because when their team members are happy, they serve the customers better and that makes the customers happy. Happy customers helps market the business through, through word of mouth. They're also loyal. They keep coming back. That makes the investors happy and you have this interdependent virtuous circle. One of my friends likes to say it's important that the people working for you self-actualize, that they, that they get better at what they're doing and live their best lives. Yes. Which I think is a really nice way of thinking of it. I totally agree with that. So anyway, um, that Whole Foods took off. Conscious Capitalism's uh, just doing the four pillars are every business has the potential for a higher purpose that includes making money, but is not restricted to that. Number two, that all the stakeholders matter and they're interdependent. All the major stakeholders matter and they're interdependent with each other. Mm-hmm. Third is that we need leadership that's 
not primarily about lining its own pockets, but is serving the business, serving the stakeholders, serving the higher purpose of the organization. And when you say they're serving the higher purpose, obviously these people are also trying to make money. So how, how do people balance that? Or how, do, how do people think about that? There's a, there's a mistaken belief that these are somehow or another in, that they're at war with each other, that's a Hobbesian war of all against all. But in fact, as I point out, the stakeholders are interdependent. And once you see they're interdependent, that they're a system, they all fit together, then you manage the business to optimize the entire system, which also maximizes long-term profit. So profits. if the system works overall, you're going to make yes, more money yourself. It, it's just, it's like raising the whole system up. And when you do that, the shareholders win too. This idea that it's all based on trade-offs is some, if the employees are winning, the shareholders are losing, or the customers are flourishing, someone else is losing, is really not the way business works. That's, it's very optimistic because the best way for society to work is that we all win. That's why I love your name of your podcast because I'm, I'm an American optimist myself. And I like how that ties into your fourth value about conscious culture. Yes, well. culture is the underappreciated virtue in businesses that uh, we know about, <clears throat> we all exist in a culture, but businesses create cultures as well. And there, are, there can be healthy cultures and there can be toxic cultures. More likely cultures or business cultures are a combination. And, but managing the culture in a conscious way, you begin to root out the, using a garden metaphor, there are weeds growing in the garden and you got to pluck those weeds up and nurture the healthy plants. And so a part of a leader's job is to be conscious of what parts of their culture are unhealthy and toxic. And do what they can to remove those um, toxic elements. So most of the capitalists you've worked with throughout your career, generally a lot of positive experiences, but obviously like in any, any, anything else, some negative, some positive. You know, the thing is, is that most of the time, business people are fundamentally honest because they understand they're going to have ongoing relationships. It's, um, if, for example, if a landlord cheats Whole Foods or takes advantage of us in some way or doesn't behave well, okay, you got us on this one lease, but we're never doing business with you again. And the landlords that are fair, treat us well and respectfully, try to work out their problems, work out with us in a win-win-win formula, we'll do dozens and dozens and dozens of deals with them. That's, it's those ongoing relationships that help business people to act in a fair way. It's, it's like if you cheat your customers, if Whole Foods cheats his customers, well, we're not going to hold on to them. Definitely. Or if we exploit our workers, they can get other jobs. Everybody has can vote with their feet. And therefore, while there might be bad actors, the general thrust of business is for ongoing long-term relationships where there's mutual gain, mutual benefits. The, incen the incentive in business is to treat people well because then you'll get treated better. Yourself. Correct. And that's why human progress is occurring. Science combined with business and capitalism results in this upward spiral of decreasing poverty increasing prosperity and humanity, even though we're in a tough little, it's not a linear thing where we're with the COVID we've taken a step or half step backwards. But if you look at it historically, the historical contest is context is ongoing upward progress for humanity for the last, well, since capitalism got going a couple hundred, 250 and that, years. That, and that's now. assuming we have the conditions for capitalism, I assume like property rights and got to like have that. those things. I mean, because we take it for granted because we've had it, you can easily snuff out um, the candle of progress and capitalism. And in fact, I would say that the intellectuals who've always been the class enemy of business, the genie got out of the bottle back in the industrial revolution. And there was about a, as Deidre McCloskey points out, another one of the great economists had a big impact on me. 
as she points out, um, the intellectuals have almost always hated business throughout all time. They've always, the aristocrats, they've looked down on trade people. They persecuted the minorities that were good at business, Jews in the West, Chinese in the East. And um, <clears throat> the genie got out of the bottle for about a 70-year period from about, you know, James Watt. We're looking at 1750, the industri- birth of the Industrial Revolution, Adam Smith coming in 1776, until Ricardo, Malthus, and then Marx appeared. And then it was like a lot of buyer's regret. We got to get the genie back in the bottle. These crazy business people are disrupting everything. The social order is being disrupted. You have all these nouveau rich who think they should be, you know, in in society. They don't have the right blood. They, they're, uh, so ever since then, I feel like the intellectuals have disliked business and are trying to get it um, contained again, get it regulated and under the iron fist again, like it was throughout most history. You think? Do you think we're gonna be able to stop them from doing that? What are the biggest dangers of what they're trying to do right now? Are there? Are there? Are there like, like, how, how are they gonna be able to try to get it under their thumb again? I mean, it. They're they are getting it under its thumb. Honestly, I mean, you see lots of innovation still occurring, but a fraction of the innovation that could be occurring if we were not so tightly regulated. It's very hard, for example, if you're not a a very large and successful company in in say uh, health and medicine to be able to innovate. It's very difficult because how much does it cost to bring a new drug into uh, healthcare has tens of thousands of rules. And so it makes it hard to get around them. Here's an interesting thing to think about. What are the two most regulated businesses in the United States? Well, healthcare is one. Healthcare. Financial sector is also highly regulated, but education, education. Well, education is really, really where does America underperform competitively internationally? We underperform in education and healthcare. I agree. It's the very, two it's very, that are most regulated have the least amount of innovation. It's very hard for the new good ideas to win in education or for the new good ideas to compete and win in healthcare because of the way it's set up with the exactly. and the monopolies. I, I, I agree. It, yeah. Well, there's something hopefully. We may route around in education because there's lots of innovations on the margin. I know people starting new schools, for example, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we know that that technology also allows us through virtual learning uh, there's 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 ways that the uh, the monopolies may be broken through innovation and i'm very ho- hopeful and optimistic about that me too there's a lot of innovation we can get there but we have to set up the rules so the best ideas can win great there's different ways of doing that there's two other topics i want to get into with you one of them is just back a little bit on nutrition and healthcare a lot of your motivation in creating and scaling whole foods was what you said you you're you're you're, you're awakening to being being conscious of of that whole world and I, and I know, you know one quote you said recently is the best solution is, is, uh, is that Americans need to actually change how they eat and live. And yes. a lot of people pushed back on that and they, they didn't like that. Uh, but but what, what are your critics missing? They don't like it because people don't want to take responsibility for themselves. They want to see themselves as victims of, of what of genetics or of evil corporations or somebody's responsible besides. And sometimes themselves. we are victims of genetics for certain things, sure. right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But. The, the reality is, and the statistics are, are grim, I mean, over 70% of adult Americans are overweight, 42.5% are obese. And the, trend, and the average adult American has gained 27 pounds since COVID. Really? Yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Wow. We are far fatter and getting worse. And uh, these are dietary lifestyle diseases. And, and 80% of what we spend on healthcare in America are for chronic diseases, Joe, diseases that tie directly back into our diet and lifestyle. And so people want a quick fix. They want to be able to, to, 
to take a drug or to swallow a pill and then everything's going to be wonderful again. But it, that, that, those, the pharmaceutical industry mostly deals with symptoms. It, 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 if you have pain, it can give you a pill for that, but it won't solve the problem of, of what's causing the pain in the first place. What's, you know, I mean, type 2 diabetes, that's pretty much a reversible disease pretty quickly, but you have to change your diet. To change your lifestyle. Should, should, should the places selling you food be educating you more about these things? Or is it not really their job or it's too hard? Here's the catch 22. Let me just, let me just yeah. state the essence of this problem. Humanity evolved over tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of years where just getting enough calories was our biggest problem. So we evolved with a, a system that craves calorie density. And calorie density for most of history was very rare. Mm. By calorie density, I mean things that have a lot of fat in them have yeah. a lot of carbohydrates in them, have a lot of... Um, Texas barbecue. Yes. Texas barbecue is very calorie dense, but it wasn't common back yeah. uh, <laughs> through most of our evolutionary history. And the type of animals you might be able to give here out hunting uh, were very rain, you know, very gamey yep. range animals. A lot animals. more lean. Yeah. Yes. Very, very lean. And more like you get might get if you were to kill a wild deer. Um and, but we crave calorie density. So when we can get a lot of fat, we'll gorge on it. And, but most of our, from most of our evolutionary history, we were mostly gathering food stuffs up to keep from starving to death. And we weren't, we we're eating a high fiber, low calorie diet and just trying to get enough calories. And now we've gotten clever and we still crave calorie dense foods, things that have a lot of fat, sugar, carbohydrates, protein in them and, and salt, I might add. Yeah. And, <clears throat> but we can have it every meal and the whole food industry is geared up to give us that calorie fix that we crave. And you have to sell some of that stuff because that's what people want to the supermarket. I mean, the, 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 the reality is, is that, uh, when I, when I, the first whole foods we had was we sold 20% of bulk foods, 30% pro produce, for example, maybe 10% were were animal foods and the processed foods were relatively small. And yet that's what grew and grew and grew and grew until bulk now went from 20% of our sales to under 1% of our sales. People mm -hmm. aren't really cooking beans anymore. They're not cooking whole grains. Yep. Uh, cooking's kind of a, a dying art, except for those people that specialize in it. So people are eating, going out to restaurants a lot and they're eating food with a lot of oil, a lot of sugar, a lot of calories in it. And we're getting fat as a result. And, and the, that's the, the essence of the problem is, is we crave calorie density, but that's not what our bodies need. They need nutrient density. They need high fiber. We need to feed fiber to our microbiome. But it requires you to re-educate your palate. And it's difficult to do that because, frankly, we're addicted. I mean, people love ice cream. <laughs> they, they love it. And uh, they they... They love burgers and fried chicken and they, and they like French fries and, and uh, they don't like vegetables much. It doesn't, vegetables are not calorie dense. For most people, they don't taste very good. That's our problem. Now it requires consciousness to choose differently, to re-educate your palate so that you, whatever you, you can teach yourself to like any food. So teach yourself to like the foods that are really good for you. You won't have any loss of pleasure. Your palate will adapt and you will start to be like me, that Brussels sprouts taste really darn good. <laughs> and a little bit of a, um, uh, some mushrooms and all, all, I mean, I eat, I probably eat 10 to 15 servings of fruits and vegetables every day. Wow. 
That's awesome. It's, it's interesting how consciousness to you applies both. I weigh the same as I wore when, weighed when I was 18 years old, Joe. I, I weigh 145 pounds. That's, same as I was when I was 18. That's, <laughs> so that's it's, very it's, impressive. So the body doesn't have to get fat. It can, you can take care of it. And it's a certain type of consciousness and discipline, I, I guess you'd say. It was discipline to, to get, to change the way. If you eat any food about 10 times, you'll start to like it. So you can consciously teach yourself. I didn't eat any vegetables when I was a kid. I hated it. So it's vegetables. a discipline to start doing it, but then once you're there, it's not as hard. Then it's easy. Now I, cr I actually crave foods that are good for me now. I've re-educated my palate. So I don't, if I eat something that's got a lot of oil on it, it tastes really greasy to me. I don't like it. It's not pleasurable any longer. For something that's got too much salt on it, it's like, that is way too salty. So it's, it's what you get your body used to. So get it used to the stuff good for, that's good for you. I love it. My wife's working with me on this. She's going to love this podcast because she's trying to push me to do this. So I Well, Taylor is obviously eats a really healthy diet herself, so you'd be good to listen to your wife. Yeah, that's good. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll try to get some discipline there. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about this last topic, about kind of the future and optimism. Obviously, one of the reasons we started the podcast is to kind of push back against a lot of pessimism we're seeing. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation earlier where we talked about the different kind of parts of the country, the different worldviews right. is the way you put it. And there's, there's a traditional part, the modern part and the progressive part. And you have an idea of how we could take the wisdom from each of those and move forward better. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about each of these parts of the country? Well, the, the theory is, which I adhere to is that, uh, consciousness and culture actually evolve that, uh, and that the best way to understand America right now is in terms of three, uh, three, developmental phases. The first one being sort of traditionalism, where uh, you might say, if we go back to the founding of the country in 1776 uh, uh, or 1789, depending on whether the Declaration of Independence or the or when we elected president started yeah. and the Constitution was approved. Um, if you go back then, about 90% about, about of the people were traditionalists that lived in the United States. And about 10% mm -hmm. were modernists. The modernists were like Ben Franklin mm -hmm. and Thomas Jefferson and Washington and Madison and, the, and Hamilton. Those guys were the first modernists. They were deists. They, they'd been, they were well-educated. And, uh, but the traditionalists are, you know, the, the traditional f values for family, loyalty to your country, um, uh, Basically, the, the, the kind of values that we now think of as more conservative I, I, remember, I remember even back then, Benjamin Franklin wanted to get rid of slavery, but he realized it wasn't possible yet. Yes. He, he was already tied to the That's right. And That's pushing right. On that. That's right. That's yeah. exactly correct. In fact, Franklin got rid of his own slaves that he had when he was very young. Um, and then, so modernity is born. And now, so today, about we estimate about 30% of Americans are still pretty much traditionalist. And we're most and, and by traditionalists, you don't obviously it doesn't mean they're pro-slavery, but but they no obviously that's yeah. that would we, uh, that would be one of the disasters of traditionalism. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, but they had a more fundamentalist religious views. They you know and uh, so, so some of that thirty percent might have some negative things we associate with negative traits. Of they might be more likely to be racists, but they also might have really positive traits as well, right? That's correct. And, and I don't think most traditionalists are racist. I think that's a very small percentage of, yep. uh, of Americans. Um, and then the birth of modernism, which the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution brought us on, is, is now we look at maybe 50% of Americans are, are traditionally modernists. And that, mean, that means they use science more in their They believe in view. science. They believe in education. They believe in rationality. 
They believe in uh, capitalism. So they, so they might, it's the modernists might still take wisdom from religion, but their, but the religion is maybe not as at the center of their lives as yes. it is for the traditionalists. They have, they have a more modern worldview. And now really, uh, it's, there was an early start to progressivism. We saw green shoot, roots of it back, green shoots back in say the transcendentalists when, when Emerson and Thoreau mm -hmm. were were in the in the transcendental, they're sort of Martin early Fuller. progressives. They were. Was exactly. Teddy Roosevelt a progressive then? Is, in some ways, Roosevelt was definitely a progressive, yeah. and and uh, I mean he 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 was the first progressive we got elected president. So um, the progressives, the modernists, what happens as the culture evolves is that there are problems that come from it. Traditionalism. We see some of the problems in traditionalism, which was um, uh, racism, sexism, um, uh, uh, patriarchy, mm, tendency to be very patriotic, which sometimes leads to wars. Then we, now we see some of the problems with modernity and modernism, which progressivism is seeking to correct. In some sense, the next wave tries to correct the problems with the waves that came before it. So just as modernism tried to correct, you know, you had Galileo standing up to the, the Pope and you had, um, uh, you had Diderot and you had all the, the, the Hume and Adam Smith and they were arguing for knowledge. Yeah, for early modernists. For, yes, yeah. exactly. Well, progressives, there's some of the problems with modernity. We see there's environmental problems. There are certain, um, injustices yep. that end up occurring that modernism hadn't corrected yet. And so progressivism begins to look at it and say, we have a flawed system. And particularly you see it most clearly today is, is the issues that, that the social justice people are most, um, th those were partly failings of traditionalism, but then modernity did not completely fix them. Mm -hmm. So prog progressive comes along and says, we need to, you know, there's an urgency to fix this. Remember now. you told me there are three branches of progressivism. What, what are those three branches again? Well, they tend to be progressives that are primarily social justice warriors. Then there's environmental warriors. And then there's alternative religion. All of those are sort of branches of progressivism. So the, some of the hippie spiritual stuff is yeah. the alternative religion. That, stuff. that was when I went, when I was in my highest progressive phase, uh, I was the alternative Hippie spirituality was the one that I went deepest into, but I, I dabbled at all, all three of them at some, at some length. And, and, and I like, years. I like your perspective that each of these parts of traditional parts of modernism and all three of these branches of progressivism, they all have wisdom within them. Yes. That you would learn from. They all, think of it. They all have virtues and vices, dignities and disasters. So what's happening now is that we're seeing a, particularly with the, how um, progressivism's become very aggressive in trying to force its values, the, the woke movement being a good example of that. You're, we're beginning to see a new um, emergence, uh, which is, which we identify as post-progressivism. And just like post-modernism, uh, post-progressivism, the next phase beyond progressivism and and basically the essence of post progressivism is seeing that all these have good things about them and bad things about it and the post progressive begins to be able to think in such a way it's like okay what are the good things about progressivism that we want to keep what are the good things about modernity you see progressivism wants is so anti modernist the hardcore people they want to throw out modernity completely it's like 
we got to get rid of fossil fuels immediately. We got to stop climate change. It's like, uh, well, if we got rid of fossil fuels immediately, we, you know, we'd have like a 90% die off, uh, uh, collateral damage. Um, and so post progressives look at traditionalism and see what's beautiful about traditionalism. What do we want to keep? What do, what do we want to have integrated? And what are the disasters about that that we need to we need to begin to get rid of? What are the good things about uh, modernity and modernism that we want to keep? What are some things that are bad? Like we want to keep capitalism. Socialism has been tried 41 times in the last hundred years, and there are 41 failures. And you can always say it hasn't been done right, but it's because actually there's good things about capitalism that we want to keep. Uh, that's how we're making progress in the world. Yeah. Um, so there are good things about progressivism we want to keep. Uh, emphasis on uh, the environment is important, and we definitely are messing up our environment, so we need to do some things to protect the environment. We definitely want to get rid of any vestiges of racism that still exists. We definitely want there to be more justice in our society. We don't want to discriminate against people because of their sexual preference, their race, their ethnicity, or anything, their gender, their gender preferences. Uh, so... How do we keep the good things in each one of them? And yeah. so that's why we, because if progressivism is allowed to to continue without being checked, it will destroy. It will, it it'll will destroy modernism. It'll break a lot of things. And people, it'll yeah, bro yeah, it'll break a lot of yeah, things. You and I, of course, both like healthcare to be affordable to everyone, and people not have to think and worry about healthcare. But we're going to get there through innovation. We're not going to get there through socialism, obviously. We'll get through through innovation and also with deregulation, because deregulation will help innovations to occur. They're difficult to occur now um, or more difficult to occur. And, and how, do, how do we bridge these cultural divides? There's so many people who are, you know, my, my, my guy cutting my hair yesterday is a, is a great guy and he described himself as progressive. He's a huge fan of Teddy Roosevelt. He likes modern progressives. But when I talked to him about innovation, I talked to him about the things we're building. He loves that too. And he, and he knows that progressives are against that. So he's confused. And how do, how do we yeah, bridge well, these divides? The problem is we did evolve in tribes and there's yeah. a tendency to, to love your own tribe and going to kill the other tribe. So we, we see that cancel cultures, like we used to be able to just, we don't we'll kill the other tribe. Now we cancel it. Uh, and, and so we see um, that tribalism running amok right now. I feel like Austin is a little better on that score. People here don't seem quite as triggered into their tribes as they did back in San Francisco. Is that, is that your experience too? Or you're seeing a I don't lot know. I never lived here? in San Francisco, so I can't say. You're, you're, you're seeing a lot of the be... tribes here as well. They get pretty angry. I just see tribes everywhere because human beings were fundamentally tribal animals. Part of being yeah. more conscious is to, is to, is, is, remember how to say you had to re-educate your diet and mm -hmm. lifestyle if you want to be healthy? Well, you got to re-educate your tribal mentality. We all have To it. not react to it. We do. We all have it. I mean, yeah. think about our, what is all the loyalty people have to sports teams? It's <laughs> well, irrational. That's, 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 that's like a healthy tribal outlet though, Well, right? it's not. It depends. You know, soccer fans are trying to murder each other in the wow, stands okay. in some places. Usually a healthy tribal outlet. <laughs> I'm pretty excited for our new soccer team. Our friend Eddie just opened here in Austin. But but yeah, hopefully it doesn't get to that extreme. But it, so it seems like having some tribal things are, can be fun, but they're obviously extremely dangerous. It, the main thing is to be conscious of our own proclivity towards tribalism and not want to kill the other tribe just because whatever, they have a different sports team or they have different political beliefs or they, they're just not in your tribe. That doesn't mean they deserve death or punishment or cancellation because they see the world differently. So, so, we, so, so you're an optimist, but in, in, so it's interesting in terms of health care for ourselves, in terms of how we work in business, in terms of these different 
tribes in our society. We all need to raise our consciousness. We do. And I'm optimistic because human beings, I see great progress being made. I am a student of history and something that I don't think is taught except to say, you know, the people, bad people in the past. Um, I see how far we've come. I see, I mean, Joe, when I was just a little boy, you know, I just turned 68. When I was a little boy, the first baseball game I ever went to was Houston got a franchise, a major league franchise, and it was the Colt 45s before it became the Astros. My dad took me out of school. I went to this it's very game. Texas. And so the first thing I noticed is I'm there, we go to the bathroom, and it's like there's two bathrooms. There's not men and women, there's that, but there's colored oh, that's and white. Cool. Right. Wow. We had Jim Crow laws back in Texas. This is back in 1962. And I asked my dad, I was like, you know, I was, I don't know, how old was I, eight or nine years old? I said, what is that, daddy? And he says, that is a great evil son and it's going to change. I love that. In my lifetime as a little boy, I saw Jim Crow. I saw the repulsiveness of it. And well, we still have racial problems, but not like we had in 1962. And pe people are getting more conscious of all of these things. We're getting more conscious. And that's why I'm optimistic. It's just that we want everything to change like that. And that's not, it does change fairly rapidly. I mean, one of the games that m the media likes to play with me is they like to make John, uh, Mr. Mackey or John, what, how's the world going to be different in 20 years? And it's like, who the hell knows? Go back 20 years ago. Yeah. Nobody had a smartphone 20 years ago. Nobody did 20 years ago. So, 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 so to leave us with some, with some words of wisdom, what would you say to Gen Z in terms of, as they're approaching this, a lot of them are in these tribes, a lot of them maybe need to raise their consciousness. What, what should they be thinking about? My biggest concern about Gen Z is that they're scared to death. These are the most scared people. They're so frightened. And I don't know whether that's the culture. You know, you read, read Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. There's been this safetyism. We're seeing it play out now with COVID. Mm -hmm. Life's full of risk. I mean, we're all going to die. And there's no escaping that. You can hide out. You can have a life at adventure. And I think the best way to live is to have a life at adventure. And uh, there, you take you take some risk. You take calculated risk. But my, I think Gen Z seems to be very scared to me. And uh, uh, that's just that we. I I don't know whether you blame that on the culture or their parents or I don't really know the source of it. But I am deeply concerned about it. Culture of safetyism. The idea that you can't say anything because somebody's feelings might be hurt. Um, you know, when I was a kid, it was sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That was, that was something every little boy. Us too. Learned. I always yeah. liked that one. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, toughen up. There's, there's, there's hard stuff out there. Not, not, now they'd not only say that, that, uh, words can be violence and words can hurt you. They think that nice words represent progress, which is also a mistake because nice words don't actually solve anything. Either. I mean, obviously I don't yeah. believe you should be cruel to people and, and, but you know what? There are people act cruelly. It's part of, it's part of learning up. It's, it's. It's just like we have to challenge our immune systems. You can't, if you don't challenge your immune system. We have to be resilient to these things. That's right. We yeah. have to be resilient. And words challenge our own immune system and helps us become stronger. And, and so my, word, my words of advice to Gen Z is um, the world has never been better than it is right now by every historical measurement. If you could have any other time to live than right now, when would you choose, Joe? Has right. there ever been a better time to be alive than right now? Right now, it's definitely maybe 2019 pre-COVID, but <laughs> <laughs> within the last, you know, within the last five years, this is the best humanity's ever had it. And there's every reason to believe, instead of that, we're heading into doom. That 25 years from now, 50 years is going to be even much better than it is today. 
There's that's what the trend line is. That's what I believe. And I don't want Gen Z to be so scared that they don't take their place in terms of, of adventures and in terms of creativity and Hey, their jobs to help solve the problems that the, their parents couldn't solve. Just like our parents, my parents solved problems their parents yeah. left to them. And my generation has it's made a lot of mistakes, but it's made a lot of progress as well. So uh, I agree. Anyway, have, have confidence and move forward in life. Awesome. Well, it's going to be an exciting adventure ahead. Thank you, John. Thanks, John.